This episode of the EdSurge podcast is brought to you with support from UNC Chapel Hill's Master of Arts in Educational Innovation, Technology, and Entrepreneurship program, or MITE. That's M-E-I-T-E. A forward-thinking program that develops leaders in educational innovation. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young. Do you know what a clopin is? Clopin. Your answer probably indicates whether you've worked at a fast food or service job in recent years. I'll admit I did not know what it was, but a clopin is the word for when an employee is scheduled to close a store, often late at night, and then open the store the very next morning, which leaves very little time um, for sleep to rest between shifts. The clopin is apparently a side effect of how algorithms have changed low wage and, and service jobs in recent years. It apparently happens because schedules are are increasingly set by computer rather than managers thinking through who should work when. And our our guest today, Emily Gindelsberger, has experienced this firsthand. In researching her new book called On the Clock, she spent at least a month each working three different low-wage jobs at a McDonald's restaurant, an Amazon warehouse, and at a customer service call center. The culture she saw at these jobs She said it was very different from what she remembers 20 years ago when she scooped ice cream for minimum wage as a teenager. In the book, she describes what she experienced as cyborg jobs, meaning they often treat employees more like robots than like people. And she says the Klopin is a big example of that. I don't think even the crappiest manager would have, like even the ones that really did not like me, would have given me a Klopin because they would have had to look me in the eye the next day and the next day after that. But if it's a computer that tells you like, oh yeah, this is the schedule, it just prints out and you're really not sure how it came up with that, but you just have this vague idea that like, oh, like data and computers, they did, the technology did it. Then it sort of like erases culpability for doing that to somebody, which is, it's a crappy thing to do to somebody to, to give them that schedule. And, but computers can't be embarrassed. So there it is. I've been curious about this world of service work because it's a sector we've been writing about a lot lately. These low-wage employers have been doing a surprising amount of work in education, partnering with colleges to offer education benefits to their employees. In fact, a growing number of big-name chains, including fast food restaurants like McDonald's and Chipotle, have started to offer free or heavily subsidized college education options to their workers. You might have seen magazine cover stories about how places like Starbucks are helping baristas get college credit on the side. The idea is that this can help those employers recruit and retain workers by touting their educational benefits and and also offer a path to more lucrative careers. But how well do these new education benefits work in practice? These are big questions, so so we're going to do a two-part series on this. For part one this week, I sat down with Emily Gindelsberger to hear about her experiences and her analysis of how tech is changing service work. Then next week, we'll hear the other side of the story from some employers, including an interview with a McDonald's executive, and others working to create a new ecosystem connecting higher education to these jobs. So I sat down with Gindelsberger in person at a conference in Chicago recently, and and we started with Klopins, and with what she says is one of the most challenging things for many low-wage workers these days, those computerized work schedules. I think that is one of the most uh, sort of under-remarked upon or under-reported on things about the way life is different for uh, low-wage workers and the way that it's really, it's different in a way that's sort of hard to imagine um, in that you don't have a regular schedule anymore. Uh, For most fast food retail workers, 
your schedule is set by an algorithm that sort of analyzes the what they think the demand is going to be that day and they use data from like the previous year and the previous month and the previous if they can manage it the calculation works best if they can use the data from the previous week but so that means that like you will get sort of like perfect staffing usually the algorithms are pretty good for how much how many people you want to have at any time however like if you're using the data from the previous week that means you don't you aren't giving your people their schedule until the day before their schedule starts and these schedules also look super weird because you don't really get retail workers with nine to five schedules anymore at all uh because you know you're going for the demand so you'll get people doing like 11 to 4 and then you know the next day it's one to eight or, or something like that and you just have no it's there's no predictability which is incredibly hard if you're trying to plan anything in your life whatsoever like especially having kids uh like that was something that a lot of people that i talked to had a lot of difficulty with is just what do i do with my children while i'm at this crazy job that demands pretty much infinite flexibility for me uh, in so that the company can be extremely flexible. You, you argue in your book that the algorithm world has also created a way in which many of these companies like a McDonald's or, or um, an Amazon would, would try to schedule for, where many of these companies would try to schedule the minimum staffing to make it work. Um, less staffing than maybe that human scheduler would have done. Is that what you found? And, and what does that look like? Yes, it definitely was true. Like that understaffing is pretty rampant. And I don't think they would think of it as understaffing. I think they would think of it as like right size staffing, you know? Um, but basically they want exactly as many people uh, on staff to handle all the business that's going to come through while working as fast as they can because that's the most efficient way to have your workers operating if you're the owner, right? Um, but that is a really unpleasant way to live if you are working that way, um, because you always have a line, you'll always have people angry because they had to wait in a line, so more people are gonna be pissed at you. It, just all of this stuff uh, adversely affects the worker, but they have no control over it whatsoever, but they're still the ones that are getting yelled at it about it. Have like It makes them become sort of disengaged with, with life a little bit, because how can you be engaged with life when you can't plan your life more than a week in advance or what, like at you know the fast food job or when you are like at Amazon, I would come home and fall asleep every day, like half an hour after I got home. I can't imagine how anyone would do that job with kids. Uh, even like after I got used to it, I would conk out immediately after work. I wanna ask you about that because one of the things that we're seeing in some of the service sector are programs to provide kind of low, uh, free or very cheap college opportunities for with online education but some of this the 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 premise is that online can be flexible and so you can fit this in and you know upskill yourself and all this stuff to to sort of like break into some other career but it sounds like you're painting a picture where this would be pretty difficult as a practical matter for an entry level person at at a at a, at a place like this Oh yeah, like it, I don't know how people would do it. One of the things that I did notice when I was doing these jobs myself is I found it almost impossible after like one of these days, like whether it was that I was 
super physically exhausted from from Amazon, which I frequently was, um, I would I brought this huge pile of books with me, and I was you know supposed to be writing this book proposal. Like when I went to Amazon, I thought I would I was going to have the book proposal done by the time I was done with Amazon. Like I really did think that I was going to do that, and I did not. I wrote like ten words while I was there. It, I was so exhausted. I was so tired. And what's more, it was like. Um, it's like it's like my willpower was drained entirely at work all day, like because it was very it was very painful. And like that's not just that's not just me. Anyone who has worked at Amazon will tell you like your first two weeks to a month, they they hurt like they're gonna hurt a lot. Um, they even say that in the training videos, <laughs> like in like an almost alarming way if you're watching the training videos for real. Um, but. Yeah, like I would get home and I would kind of hate myself for being unable to make myself do another job after what was a very difficult day of work. And expecting that of people is too much. Like it's unrealistic. It's ridiculous. And like people who would be shocked if they were actually made to work in an Amazon warehouse or in a call center or in a McDonald's, um, people who are shocked by the things that I'm telling them should not be making decisions about what's realistic to expect workers to do to like get an education, what's realistic for workers to do to keep their families together. Like you can't you can't have a relationship with someone when you're both exhausted all the time. Like, how do you take care of your kids if you are constantly, like, if you're constantly, like, if you can't, like, say that you can pick them up every, after school, like, at a certain time when you don't know? Because, like, yeah, at the call center, if you were, if you were on the phone with somebody when your shift ended, you, you couldn't just, like, say, like, oh, my shift's over later. You had to finish that call. And I was on a call once that went, like, 45 minutes long after my shift was over. It was it really was awful. And, I again, I don't know what I would have done if I had had kids. Probably pretend to, like, probably, oops, we got disconnected. Sorry. But you can really get in trouble if you, like, your calls get flagged is what I heard if you hang up before the customer because you're really not supposed to do that. After the break, why this author thinks changes to low-wage jobs in recent years are having far-reaching effects. And some ideas for making work more human again. Stay with us. The Mighty program is open to innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs interested in making an impact using technology. Mighty features coursework customized to your interests and an internship with the leading edge edtech company in the research triangle. You'll have the opportunity to create learning environments and design breakthrough edtech. Join them December 4th from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a virtual information session. Learn more on the website ed.unc.edu slash M-E-I-T-E. That's ed.unc.edu slash M-E-I-T-E. Now back to the episode. So how did we get here? For her book research, Gindelberger did eventually have time to sit down and read stacks of books about the history of how these kinds of jobs have changed over the years. And she got particularly fascinated with one figure you might have heard of as an innovator in modern uh, management of work, Frederick Taylor. So Frederick Taylor was this guy. He was from Philly. Um, he was he kind of reminds me of like a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos or something like he a, he talked a lot like them. Um, and he also was kind of the archetype of the guy that like is expected to go to 
Harvard or something. He literally was supposed to go to Harvard and instead went to work in a steel mill because he wanted to be, he was an upper, like an upper class guy, but he wanted to be an engineer. Like he really wanted to work, you know, with metal and stuff. Uh, so he went in and started at the bottom at a, at a steel mill in Philly at Midvale and uh, sort of worked his way up to uh, like engineering. And while he was doing that, he was working alongside, you know, normal working guys. And he observed uh, what at the time was called soldiering, which was kind of an early sort of proto-unionization in which the guys that like the senior guys that, you know, did the skilled work around the steel mill, which usually at the time, like at that time, like involved like kind of complicated math. Uh, so you, you did have to be very smart to, to do these jobs. It wasn't just like carrying big bars of iron around. Um, so they would sort of set the pace for the whole factory. They would sort of tell everybody like, all right, we're making, we're making this many today. Um, because if you let the boss, like usually the bosses didn't really understand how the steel mill actually worked at all. Um, and one of the things that Taylor gained is the knowledge of how every job was done along the way up to the top. So he understood how the steel mill worked like way better than the owners at that point. And, uh, so he thought he had this uh, sort of grand idea that I can kind of forgive him for at this point because there was not the amount of evidence that there is today that this does not actually work. But his idea was that if the way to cure poverty was by like sort of like influencing the workers to become more productive in one way or another. And so workers increase their productivity. Um, the you know, productivity of the plant goes up, you know, sales go up, uh, the boss will cut the workers in on the, you know, increases in their productivity and give them raises and, you know, yay, no more poverty. Cool, right? Uh, so Taylor seemed to really believe in that. Um, and so he was almost like sort of religious in his zeal to like eliminate uh, soldiering, uh, downtime, inefficiency, all of this stuff from these plants. So he did this to Midvale, and then he went sort of on the road and did this at places just all around the country. He would do these motion studies where he'd stand behind people with stopwatches. He'd pay the best people on the line to go as fast as they possibly can. And then through some still very opaque calculation, he would figure out like, oh, okay, if the fastest guy going as fast as he can can do this much in a day or like in 10 minutes, then every, every person should be able to do this many by the end of the day, right? And people hated it. Like workers hated him. Like people like there were always strikes when he when he would go there, like people would revolt, like they called him Speedy Taylor. Um but he was amazing at increasing productivity. And at the time, like it did seem like they cut their workers in on it a little more than they do now. Hold on, I actually brought a copy of the book. So one of the things that, like, the famous story is the story of Schmidt, and he talks about how he, like, got this guy named Schmidt by through timing and, you know, like, just having him follow, like, draining all of the autonomy from the job. Like, basically making this guy into a robot who followed orders exactly. Um, he was able to, like, increase this, this one man's productivity by, like, 362%. Um, but he only paid him like a quarter more an hour, e even though that was enough to make the guy wasn't particularly great at math, but that was enough to get him to do it. 
Um, so like that story got really famous. And uh, so Upton Sinclair wrote in sort of a counter letter to that when it was published in the magazine. He says, I shall not soon forget the picture he gave us. Uh, of Schmidt and the fellow workers at Bethlehem Steel induced to give 362% more service for, oh, it was 61% more pay. Why, he asked, should they receive $1.85 for the work instead of, say, $2.85? Taylor responded, saying in his experience, if you pay workers too much, they work irregularly and tend to become more or less shiftless, extravagant, and dissipated. Our experiments show that for their own best interest, it does not do for most men to get rich too fast. So this idea that like, if you can get people to work harder, then you'll increase their productivity and then they'll become middle class, doesn't, it's never worked, right? It's never been what they say it is. Because like when you say like, oh yeah, I increased my productivity, you would think that like, it would be a straight line. Your, your, your pay would increase in proportion to that productivity, but no, it's, it's usually like your productivity increases quite a bit and your pay increases just a little bit. And so that's how it was for quite a while. And then in the 1970s, increases in productivity continued to go up at a very, very, like at a pretty steep rate, but uh, it seemed to uncouple entirely from worker like pay in the 1970s. So for the last 50 or so years, like we've been getting incredibly productive in America. Like it's been amazing. Like a worker at McDonald's who is, you know, constantly has a line. They're constantly in the weeds. You know, it's constantly a rush. Yeah, they're going to work really hard. They're going to they're going to be extremely productive, but they also are going to be miserable. Like because it's exhausting to work at 100 percent all the time, no matter like what the you know posters tell you. <laughs> you you can't give 110% all the time. You aren't physically capable of doing that. And it's ridiculous to expect people to do that. So yeah, that's Taylorism. What do you recommend? Like, how would you, if you could, you know, kind of control this workforce, uh, this work kind of environment, what would you recommend to, to sort of turn, to, to sort of address the issues that you're raising? <sighs> See, that's the problem. Like, who knows? Um, I mean, I got some ideas. Uh, in particular, I think that right now the, the sort of like this very carnivorous uh, capitalism that we practice in America, it's not like that everywhere. Uh, so we, we don't have to do it like this if it's making everybody miserable, which it is. Like it really is everywhere. The subtitle of Gindelsberger's book is What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. And that, that might sound a bit exaggerated to say work is driving people insane, but she argues that the working conditions of, of low-wage workers and the narrative around work in America is having negative impacts on mental health. The way that we work cre- is a recipe for creating like continual chronic stress all the time, and continual chronic stress all the time is basically the next health crisis in first world countries in particular. Um, Like when you look at all the things that we die of in the first world, like heart attacks, strokes, like cancer, like if you look into these things, like they all have their roots in stress. Like it's, I think they just named it's, they call it like the diseases of civilization. And it's really a big problem, although it is sort of under-recognized where the roots of it are right now. I think that the way we work is killing us. 
and making us crazy uh, because chronic stress has a lot of effects on your mental health. Like it'll make you, like sometimes it makes, it makes people depressed, anxious, irritable, uh, and it also sort of like changes the way you see the world. Like if you're under chronic stress, you, your worldview become, starts sort of narrowing. Uh, you start to care only about like the people who are close to you. You stop being able to sort of like, y your body just forces you to care about the present instead of the future, uh, to prioritize the present over the future and prioritize people you know over strangers uh, and people who aren't like you. And uh, that's like, it's like, a, it's like a biological thing. It's not, th this isn't like something I'm making up. This is a, a thing. And when I look at, uh, I don't know, the last election in particular and the way people feel about immigrants, uh, like it even, like chronic stress even makes you more likely to be interested in like a strongman leader because you start seeing the world in this very, now is the only thing that matters. It's us versus them. I'm constantly being attacked. I'm constantly being encroached upon because like, yeah, you are. Your stress response is going off at work, you know, 20 times a day. That is not something that would ever happen anytime but now, right? Like unless there was like some sort of apocalypse, unless there was like a war, in which case it would make sense for your body to start acting like going into like survival mode. And I think right now, like a lot of Americans are just in survival mode. They feel like constantly under, like there's no relief for them ever. And until we can actually give those people some relief, I don't know that anybody is going to be able to really get a lot of people interested in say like making sure the world, like, like making sure the world isn't underwater in 60 years in like, I don't know, like owning up to the fact that we wrecked a lot of countries and that's why their people are coming here and that's why we have a moral responsibility to like take them in. We ruined their country, <laughs> you know? Um, but it's hard to feel things like moral responsibility, just like it's hard to read a whole bunch of academic books after work at Amazon, you know? Like you just don't have you just don't have the spare energy for that when all you're trying to do is survive. There was somebody I interviewed um, at one of these big corporations that he is basically like, what, what, what are you saying? Do you just, do you not want Walmart? Do you not want the efficiencies that let people have, that has raised the standard of living and that give us all the beautiful, wonderful things about today? So I'm curious what you'd say to this, because in a way, these worker gains have done something, I'm sure. I mean, again, just to play devil's advocate. So how, yeah, what would you say to somebody who's sort of arguing, well, look, you can get the cheap stuff at Walmart and you're, you have a higher quality of life, like you have a lot of things. I would say that those things are, that's one of those tricks of like, uh, not tricks, but just like that's what somebody says who is completely invested in only the measurable, uh, only what you can actually like gather with data or whatever. Uh, because yeah, like I guess you can buy, I don't know. I just see a lot of people with closets full of clothes and like stuff and crap that does not actually make them happy at all. And, but unable to spend time with their children and their families. And like, I don't know, people didn't get asked about this. People didn't get asked whether they wanted to trade, you know, a decent job with a pension and like, you know, small stores in your, in your town that sort of created this like cohesive idea of like, 
I don't know. I think that's what people picture when they talk about like, oh, things used to be better. Like America used to be great. Like I think they're picturing life before Walmart, honestly, like when you could actually make a living, I don't know, like running a, I don't know, a clothing store or something in a small town. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think people, I don't think anybody likes this. I don't, and I think if they had been asked, like, "Hey, we're going to do NAFTA," like, would, would you? Are you willing to trade your? How would you like to trade your job in a factory, which isn't you know fantastic, but you know it pays you know enough to feed your family that you never have to be worried about them, that your schools are funded in your community. People used to be, I think, happier, and their jobs used to be more tolerable. I got to say, we we talked a long time. Uh, about the culture of Silicon Valley, um, how she sees plenty of people today carrying on these ideas and attitudes uh, of Frederick Taylor. In her view, these big tech leaders are, are not heroes of innovation. Um, they're, they're the problem she sees that needs some kind of new innovation to stop. At some point, our time was running out, and, and I was just looking for some way to, to kind of wrap all this up. I keep looking for a, a, a more positive note to end on, but... Um, oh, yeah. But, yeah, that's positive, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Like, I, I think people are finally sort of getting that, that these people do not have people's best interests in mind. I think like if you look at the younger generation, they look at, you know, this idea, like this American dream idea, if you work, if you just like subscribe to like these rules of capitalism, if you turn yourself into a robot, you'll succeed. I think they are rejecting that because they see it's really obviously not true. Like, they see that the meritocracy is bullshit. Uh, they see that going by going to college, you just saddle yourself with enormous amounts of debt uh, that you'll never be able to pay off. Uh, it's, I think they see that like this path we're on is insane. Like it's, it's like something out of like Dr. Strangelove. Like it's just insane people are running the country. Um, and just, just in the past few years, people are starting to realize that I think. And I think that's really, in a weird way, like positive because there are only a few people. Like the people who are running things, their their views are not popular. Like their ideas about what work should be and what you should have to like sacrifice to be able to just like feed your family. Taylor Taylor wasn't popular. No, po- Taylor was a weirdo. All of the that's one of the. <laughs> That's one of the funny things that I that, that I got out of doing all the research for this book. Any great man in history, almost certainly a total weirdo. So, and I'm almost like, but it sounds like you feel like Bezos would be like buds with him. I mean, maybe. I'm I'm still confused about that guy, but there was this interesting story of, that I think Jeff Bezos told at uh, I think it was like a Princeton graduation, Harvard graduate, one of those. So some I he went to Princeton. All right, then I thought it was Princeton. Okay. So at Princeton graduation, he gave a speech to the graduating kids, and it was something about how when he was little, his grandparents took him like on a road trip, and his grandma smoked. And uh, so he, Jeff Bezos, like little, little baby Jeff Bezos, like was very smart even at that time. And he worked out, he had heard at school that every time you smoked a cigarette, it took seven minutes off your life. And he calculated how long she'd been smoking, how many packs she smoked a week and like what that came out to and said like, grandma, like you've already, you've taken like 20 years off your life by smoking. Like I worked it out with math. And his grandma like started crying (laughs) because that's like hard to hear. 
And his grandpa sort of pulled the car over and sort of like took Jeff, you know, over to the side and he's like, Jeff, like there's being right, like, like there's being correct and there's being right. Like sometimes there's being, no, it was, there's being right and there's being kind. And I think he still kind of is just kind of fundamentally a person that had to be told that, you know what I mean? That, and I don't know if he is able, I don't know if he's a person with the same empathy as other people. Like, and I'm sure his life is also like one of the most stressful that exists, honestly. Same with all the politicians. Uh, like their lives have been made incredibly horribly stressful by themselves. Uh, but it doesn't matter where the stress comes from that will still give you that very us versus them. Like I have to protect myself. I have to like, everyone's coming for me and I need to defend myself mindset. It doesn't matter whether it's real or not. Um, but I don't know, maybe you should just take three months off and see what life is like. That would be my recommendation. Everyone I know who like works in Silicon Valley and has taken and has gotten like laid off or quit a job and didn't have to take a job immediately. Like, they're just like, my God, the world is a different place. Like everything doesn't have to be miserable. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like most people don't get that chance to remember what life was like when you were not chronically stressed. Um, most people like at McDonald's are never gonna have that chance. Um, but we can't keep going like this, you know? Next week in part two of our exploration of, of new education benefits in context of today's algorithmic workforce, we'll hear from leaders trying to rethink how higher education connects with these kinds of service jobs. For that, I reached out to a variety of folks, including getting a, an interview with Director of Educational Strategies for McDonald's. And we'll hear their response to some of the issues raised this week and their vision of how they'd like to see things change. So make sure to join us next week for that. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Each week, we dive deep into how education is changing. And if you don't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app or wherever you listen. And if you like the show, tell a friend or, or leave a rating or review. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Tune in next week for more on the future of education. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.